This is the STEM Read Podcast. Welcome to the STEM Read Podcast. I'm Jillian King-Cargyle. I'm a writer, a book lover, and the director of NIU's STEM Read. In this episode, we're presenting an encore of future-telling, math and physics are my superpowers. Our guests are author S.L. Huang and physicist Rebecca C. Thompson. Twenty twenty was a long and difficult year, but it also forced STEM Read to think differently about how we create and deliver some of our programs. One of the things I'm proudest of are our future-telling webinars. They rose from the ashes of what would have been an awesome in-person sci-fi conference, and we've been hosting them online since July. Future-telling brings together great minds from the worlds of writing and STEM. We have conversations that explore bleeding-edge research and its impact on our society and our science fiction. Our goal is to science up the world of fiction and to inject new streams of creativity into STEM. We run these programs in partnership with the NIU Libraries with generous support from NIU STEAM and the Friends of the NIU Libraries. In this episode of the STEM Read Podcast, we're giving you an encore of one of our future-telling talks. Our guests are S.L. Huang and Rebecca C. Thompson. S.L. Huang is a Hugo Award-winning author who justifies her MIT degree by using it to write eccentric mathematical superhero fiction. She is the author of the Cass Russell series of sci-fi thrillers from Tor Books, starting with Zero Sum Game, as well as the fantasy Burning Roses. She is also a Hollywood stuntwoman and firearms expert and the first professional female armorer in the entertainment industry. Rebecca C. Thompson is a physicist and author of the popular Spectra series of comic books about physics. She is head of the Office of Education and Public Outreach at Fermilab. Prior to working at Fermilab, Thompson was head of public outreach at the American Physical Society. In her book, Fire, Ice, and Physics, The Science of Game of Thrones, she analyzes fan theories by looking at actual physics and lots of other weird and sometimes amazingly disgusting science. I got to spend time with both of these awesome women at C2E2 in Chicago during the before times, and I knew I had to get them together. They are both super smart, super fun, and super weirdly into swords. I want them to become best friends, but short of that, I want people to hear them talk to each other about the intersections between sci-fi, science, and of course, swords. You're going to hear an excerpt from the live future telling event. The full conversation is posted at go.niu.edu/futuretelling. And if you're listening on or before April 21st, you can also sign up for our latest event, Greening Our Future, with author Jeff Vandermeer. He's the author of Annihilation, Born, and his latest book is Hummingbird Salamander. Jeff will be joined by meteorologist Victor Jansini and mechanical engineer John Shelton. Did I mention these events are free? Amazing science meeting amazing sci-fi. What's not to like? So check out go.niu.edu slash futuretelling and enjoy my conversation with author S.L. Huang and physicist Rebecca C. Thompson. It's good to see you here, and I'm super excited about tonight's conversation. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Ethel Huang. This is my thriller series, starting with Zero Sum Game, and it's about a superpowered mathematician 
whose superpower is doing math really, really fast. And uh, she uses it to kill a lot of people, which is uh, what you do with math. So um, there are three books out so far, Zero-Sum Game, and then Null Set and Critical Point. And uh, those of you who are math inclined may notice the math puns in the titles because it just amuses me. I love math. Um, I am uh, I was a math major at MIT, and uh, I just really dig math all the time. People ask me sometimes if I do the math in the books, and the answer is definitely yes. <laughs> so I'll do like an after a whole afternoon of calculations, and it'll end up like one line in the books because I don't want to bog the you know the action and the gunfight down too much. Um, I also have a book, another book coming out uh, in a week, no, less than a week, six days. Um, it's my first fantasy. It's called Burning Roses, and it is a, fantasy, a fairy tale retelling of where Red Riding Hood is a recovering assassin, and she teams up with Ho Yi, the archer from Chinese mythology, and they have incredible adventures and angst about their families a whole lot. Oh, and they're both queer middle-aged women, because... Uh, that's kind of my brand. That's about what I write. And since we're talking a lot about you know, transhumanism and stuff here, too, I'll mention that I also do write a lot of short fiction um, that deals with themes of medical technology and uh, advancements of uh, interfacing technology with the human body and uh, looking into the near future kinds of advancements that way um, that I try to make very socially conscious and like examining themes of, of our world. I really like swords, and I've been training in swords since, like, Oh, gosh. For a lot of years now. I won't give away my age. But yes, uh, if it has a blade, I've probably trained with it. I am a physicist by training, and while I was in grad school, realized that what I wanted to do with my life is tell everyone else how awesome physics is. And so I did a hard pivot from research, and now I use storytelling in various ways to get people excited and engaged in physics. Spectra, the laser superhero series, was one way to do that. She fights such villains as the quantum mechanic and misalignment and general relativity, all with the idea of hooking middle schoolers on physics, laser physics specifically, and having them walk away both enjoying a story and learning some science. It's really hard to convince a bunch of older physicists to fund comic books, but when you give demos to their uh, grandchildren who then very coherently explain lasers, it turns out it works pretty well. It's also impossible not to make laser jokes. So I had a lot of fun designing Spectra, her powers, her world, and writing about that. And that's one way I use storytelling. And then the other way is kind of coming at the problem from a different direction and taking a story everybody loves and gets excited about and putting some physics in it and explaining the physics. And so that's what I did with my book, Fire, Ice, and Physics, The Science of Game of Thrones. And it's all about the cool physics that's in Game of Thrones that you might not have thought about. Like, can an ice wall work? Is that a thing? Can dragons fly and breathe fire? And by far my favorite thing to write about was swords and metallurgy and why swords do what they do and why the fictional uh, Valyrian steel is so great and based on Damascus steel in the US, or, you know, in the real world. So I had a lot of fun doing that. And really just my goal in life is to get people hooked on physics. What is the, I want to take the sword thing first from both angles. So S.L. Huang, what is the appeal of swords to you? What do you like about them? Why do you use them? How did that factor into some of the stunts that you did? And then we'll talk to Becky about some of that cool science behind the strength of steel. Uh, well, I mean, let's be honest, swords are just really cool, so yeah, that is that is my entire reason for being into swords. I, I cannot claim any other, like, you know, 
that, I mean, I love the history, and you know, when I, uh, I'm, I I've done mostly Western sword play, but when I do like Chinese stuff, it um, it's also like feel, you know, I can say it feels some connection to my heritage or whatever. But really, I just like swords, and I think they're really cool. Um, and I I enjoy it as a, a an art form or sport or whatever you want to call it. Um, and uh, I I'm fascinated with it, and I'm fascinated. And the, the, the longer I do it, the more I'm fascinated with our romanticism of it, you know, these deadly weapons. And they, they just have so much character and there's so much, we put so much emotion into the way we think of them, which I find absolutely fascinating. And, uh, and yeah, I just love them. So from a physics perspective um, it, and a storytelling perspective, one of the things I loved learning about, particularly with um, how steel is made and Damascus steel, was the story that went into the science um, and how science really shaped human history to some degree. Um, steel was developed when the Bronze Age kind of ended um, because we had in the Bronze Age, you had copper and tin, and they could be mixed together to create the alloy bronze. Um, but you don't find those two metals in the same area. So significant trade routes had to develop um, to create this metal. And then that all collapsed and people were like, well, crap, now we need weapons. What are we going to do? And so steel happened. Um, but steel is very complicated to make because the melting point of iron is so high and it took a long time to get fires that hot and then a long time to figure out how to separate iron from other things and then a long time to figure out how to make that into anything usable. And the just looking at uh, the way kind of history, like the, the civilization developed around the creation of steel was amazing. And then thinking about it, you know, in relation to what's going on, or in relation to modern science, um, Damascus steel is this really neat steel that no one was able to create in modern times. People tried. Two groups starting in 1982 went back and forth and back and forth and said, you do it this way, no, you do it this way. It's this amazing story of the fight between two groups. Each paper was insulting the other. It was incredible. These two groups were going at each other and trying to be the first to create this, and neither succeeded. One group actually, uh, the leader of one group died before it was able to, you know, before they were able to confirm that it was Damascus steel uh, or that how to create Damascus steel. So then this group comes in and is like, you know what, we're just going to throw this thing in a really great microscope and see what we got here. Like, let's just throw it in there and see what we got. And what they found is that everybody had been trying to replicate this technology from the Middle Ages. And what had happened is a group of people had accidentally stumbled upon the perfect formula with the perfect trace elements, with the perfect amount of carbon, with the perfect method to get the exact right temperature. I mean, we're talking complete magic had to happen, and they created carbon nanotubes. So you've got medieval weapons that have carbon nanotubes at the edge, the surrounding steel that still nobody can recreate. And I love just the story of how steel has shaped human history, how it's used, how this pursuit for the ultimate weapon has really been, you know, just throughout history, things that people are looking for. It's amazing to me. Speaking of fantasy, which we're all a fan of here, I feel like the alchemy that we talk about in fantasy, it's not gold, it's carbon nanotubes. Right? <laughs> yes, that's exactly it. It's like, and I love that it grounds it, you know, I mean, and the thing with fantasy is like you create a rule set, 
people jump in and you can take them anywhere. And, uh, you know, as long as you play within your rules, people will follow you through a story. And I just love it when it can touch back into real life and it can just, you know, really have touch points back into what's actually, you know, what people will actually interact with. That's super cool. And I think this gets at this, this interest that you both have in weaponry. And so the Cass Russell books kind of deal with the near future of weaponry. And then uh, your Hugo award-winning short story, as the last I may know, talks about kind of the ethical nature of using weapons and whether we should or shouldn't. So I guess first set up that those stories for the audience and let's talk about just your views on the future of weaponry. It's actually, I find I, because I've been a weapons professional for such a long time now, I, I get very serious about it in ways that, I mean, I talk about swords being cool and I absolutely believe that, but I have also put an incredible number of thought cycles into the fact that these are dangerous weapons. And they're not only dangerous weapons, they're one thing that a sword instructor of mine used to say was that swords are the only weapon that's designed for their optimal purpose to be killing human beings. Like every other weapon that we can think of has some other uh, adaptation that we use it for. Like obviously combat knives are different from kitchen knives, but you know, we use kitchen knives. We, we have them for a, a purpose that isn't violent. You know, axes are used to chop wood, guns are used to hunt. The, these, but swords are so specifically for a violent purpose against other human beings. There's not really a, there are no kitchen swords. And yet we, we love them, we romanticize them, we put them in our fantasy, we make them into their own characters, we imbue them with magic. And, and I'm as into this as anybody else. I'm not sitting in judgment here <laughs> the fact that we do this. But it, it certainly is something that I think about a lot. And also, you know, as somebody who has been a professional armorer in Hollywood, and my job was doing the firearms for, you know, major movies and television. And I also love firearms as a sport. I actually learned to shoot at MIT and doing sport pistol. And there's something about the focus of it that really, that I'm quite enamored with as something as a, a hobby. But there, you know, obviously there are very deep questions there in terms of like the, what lines we should draw. And certainly, you know, I put a lot of thought into this and I, I, I get very serious about it. I get very serious about like people uh, not, treating weapons respectfully enough um, in real life. You know, I'm very serious about like my gun safety and stuff like that. So it's, it's one of those things that I think because it is such a particular interest of mine that I have also put a lot, a lot of thought into the, the more challenging aspects of it socially and emotionally. And I, I write a lot of these things into my fiction. As the last time I know is about weapons of mass destruction, which till this moment when we're talking about this, whenever anybody asks me the inspiration of that, the, the truth is that it's, I went to the uh, atomic bomb museums when I was living in Japan to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And it, it was a profound experience. Um, those museums really wrecked me in a way that was very educational for me and made me understand emotionally a lot more about what happened in World War II. So, you know, I always talk about that as my inspiration. But now that we're talking about this, it, it's absolutely true that I, I have 
for a very long time, you know, thought about weapons in general in all, all sorts of ways, because, you know, as a fan of action and science fiction and fantasy, I want to be able to play with these things in fiction. But also, you know, I, I went to those museums and I, I hadn't understood emotionally, you know, we use like in Battlestar Galactica, we use we're like nuking the ships and we just talk about it so lightly or we use nuclear weapons as our our fun apocalypse creators for our dystopias. You know, there was a nuclear war and now there's a dystopia and we'll start the story there. And I the emotional we, we don't uh, focus necessarily on the social and emotional impact of weapons in our fiction a lot of the times, which, you know, sometimes we don't want to because we just want to have fun. But I think it's also important. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's books that you read, you know, because you want those space battles, you know, <laughs> you, you want the lasers, you want you want things yeah. blowing up. And then when you sit back on your own, especially in a short story, I find, or a novella, like you can you can be a little more contemplative in that space, I think. So we did a poll before the uh, before the presentation started that was about types of enhancements or superpowers you might want. And I'm trying to remember what the there there were a few that were popular. I think flight ended up being the most popular. So I want to know what we're going to get into transhumanism and, and things like that. But what what superpower would you have? Would you have lasers? Would you have math? Uh, would you stick with what you've written about, or is there something else that you're dying to have? I went back and forth between flight and uh, eternal youth. And I think that the older I get, the more I lean towards eternal youth, because there's a lot I want to do <laughs> in life, or like that. But I will say, when I was much younger, um, in high school, I used to skydive. And I, you know, I've been in planes, like, my whole life. I don't even remember when my first flight was. And, and it's great. And you can get from point A to point B, and you get a drink, and it's wonderful. But skydiving, it is such a different experience with how exposed you feel to the world. My entire perception of of like just relative perception of things is amazing. If you're trying to fall at the same rate as someone and it's a cloudless sky, one of you can move and you have no idea who moved. You just know that relative to each other, you're in a different spot, but you don't know who moved. It's the weirdest experience. And I would love to be able to experience that regularly without also the threat of death. So that's, I think I'm gonna have to move back to flight because that was a, a pretty great feeling. I also love skydiving. <laughs> it's so fun. I tend to go for, I would love to have different like uh, mental superpowers, things like a superpower. Like I, I, I'm a mathematician and I'm not an engineer. And this is something my engineering friends mock me for all the time, as they should, is I'm terrible at like building anything <laughs> or doing anything technical with my hands. I'm all theory. So, you know, I would love the ability to just like build things out of nothing all the time, stuff like that. But I think, you know, stuff like those super powers like those are always the ones that tempt me. But I think if I had to choose one, and I'm only thinking about this now because I always go back and forth on what I choose, but I think it would be math related. And I think it would be not the one my main character has, which is to do these lightning fast calculations that allow her to have, you know, the fun type of violence as we're talking about. But I think I would want to be able to control or influence probabilities because think how cool that would be if because every the world runs on probability, right? 
And to be able to, even if I couldn't control it 100%, if I could nudge probabilities and make things more likely and less likely, I think that would be really, really powerful. <laughs> we were trying to pick superpowers that had some basis and things that we were moving towards. So I always bring up jetpacks. And in one of the, uh, the first future telling presentation, all of the panelists were like, jetpacks are stupid and terrible and we don't want them. And I was like, oh, no. But where where are we in terms of some of these things uh, scientifically, like in, in terms of being able to become more than human in some way, like a superpower or an enhancement? Like, how about flight? I mean, I think we essentially have jetpacks, but they're not like, you know, they're not as easy and practical and convenient as we would like to be able to like step off out of our doors and fly. Um, there are, you know, the rigs, I think you need a sport pilot license for some of the bigger ones that are like personal rigs where you can take yourself up in the air. And I disagree with your other panelists because I think it's really cool and I want one. <laughs> I mean, I would take a jetpack, but I will admit my uh, my the the total of my knowledge about jetpacks came from one episode of NCIS. So I, I don't have an extensive knowledge of what jetpacks are available. But oh yeah, I'd take one, like if offered, absolutely. Yeah, I think right now they just take you know they take a lot of training and they're they're just not very they're cumbersome and not not like fun flight the way we think of superpowered flight. But you know. Maybe we can get there, and I'm all for it. I, I think it would be very one of the most interesting things about jetpacks, I think, is that it enters us into a more yeah. three-dimensional world. Because if everybody starts traveling by jetpack, suddenly we have like this traffic control in three dimensions, which we, you know, we do that a little bit with airplanes and stuff, but there it's like highly regulated. But if we have that on the, the person level, on the earth surface. That's going to that's gonna be something. That's going to change I, things I actually a lot. have a 75-gallon aquarium, which I love. We have great fish. And I, I'm fascinated watching them because they have that 3D motion, right? So they can, like, chase each other in 3D and in ways that I can never do confined to Earth. It's, I love watching it and putting together fish. You pick ones that are like, you want some that hang out on the bottom and some that hang out on the top and watching how they switch. I, I love it for exactly that reason. All of a sudden, they live in a 3D world where I'm confined to a 2D sphere. It's really kind of cool. We have 3D cities in science fiction, which always fascinate me. And yet, every time I've been in a city that has any three-dimensionality to it, I've gotten totally lost. Because <laughs> I've tried to go to the place, and I don't realize that I'm like on the wrong level and that the road goes down underneath or something. And I'm, I'm just... I can, I'm not instinctually able to find oh, yeah, anything. An hour on Upper Wacker and Lower Wacker Drive? Like, what is that? I, like, who did that? So are we ready to question. You, you think about even when you're walking down the hallway and you have another person coming at you and you're like, oh, me, you, me. I, what if you had to do that in three-dimensional space? Can we handle it? But I think that's an interesting point, too, because uh, S.L. Huang, you've written about some characters who have had these, you know, surgeries or enhancements, and it takes a lot of adjusting. I'm thinking of, by degrees, dilatory, and dilatory time, sorry, <laughs> but uh, thinking about having uh, robotic eyes, and and we'll get to uh, mermaids, I'm sure, in a little while, but so can we adjust to it? And then that's, you know, how many people wanted, about 15% of us wanted enhanced sight, so that's something that's being moved towards and it's uh, popular in science fiction, but uh, do you want to talk about that story a little bit? Sure. I, 
you know, one of the things that I that fascinates me about these types of body enhancements is that we, you know, we use them in our superhero stories a lot. And, you know, I, I'm somebody who's had a lot of health problems and I've had a lot of major surgeries. And it is, it's rough, man. It's hard to recover from this stuff. And it's hard to adjust. And it, a lot of times it's not necessarily better. It's just different. And it can be kind of orthogonal to like whatever you had before. You know, we are making these strides with, you know, different prosthetics like that story in particular. Um, part of the inspiration was a friend of mine who is an electrical engineer and was working on like functional prosthetic eyes that could theoretically uh, see and be attached to the optic nerve. And I'm not quite sure where that research is now, but it's, you know, it's being done. This is, you know, only a couple steps into the future. But, you know, as somebody who's had these, you know, intersections and experiences with health and disability, I, I think it's going to be very different from we expect, at least at first. It's not going to be like, oh, I can, you know, well, what's the TV show, Six Million Dollar Man, you know, I can walk in and walk out, or the Bicentennial Woman, all these, you know, where suddenly I'm this, like, amazing, powered, invulnerable person who can, with just a little bit of time, easily adapt to, you know, shooting lasers out of my hands. I think it's going to be a lot slower and a lot harder and at first, a lot of it's going to be, you know, purely medical. And even that, there's going to be a lot of uh, angst and social issues to navigate that, you know, where we're, we do see already in some of these, uh, you know, disability spaces. Um, and, you know, there's going to be a lot more of those conversations going forward about, about ethics and about choices and bodily autonomy and all that stuff. And I love digging into those aspects of it. I mean, we, we've talked a lot about, you know, the fun aspects versus the social aspects and, and the, the Cass Russell books are like very fun superhero, you know, they're, they're thrillers. But the story you're talking about, I, I try to get into a little bit more of the, you know, well, what would this look like in reality? And what a little bit more thinky um, about uh, social issues. And so, Becky, uh, science-wise, what are some of the other things like invisibility? It seems like there's there's always people working on invisibility cloaks, right? Invisibility is an interesting one because there's a couple different ways groups have gone after it. One, there's, you know, the, the idea of coming up with materials that bend light around an object. And with that, it's hard to create materials that are big enough to do that in all wavelengths, particularly visible spectrum. Every, what, four or five years, three or four years, New York Times has a science piece. Oh, Harry Potter's invisibility cloak. It's gonna, you know, it's like five years away. And it's been five years away for like 20 years. There's always, that's something that everybody's working towards. I mean, particularly for weapons, right? You, like, you want to be able to cloak your, you know, fighter jet. But the issue is that the, the materials that they have are wavelength specific and not necessarily something you can do with all, you know, visual, with the visual light or, you know, what I can see. There's a group at Rochester that did this really cool thing, and it, there's a great video of it, where they actually, instead of trying to come up with a material to bend light around, just took lenses for, and for like 150 bucks, set them up in this perfect little, this perfect line, so that you could, if you look straight down it, you can like put a pencil in most locations and it looks like it's just disappearing. And so the whole idea of invisibility is you just got to get the light around something and not back to the, the person that's looking. You know, you don't want light to reflect off the object to get to your eye. And how you do that 
is different depending on who you are. And so I loved the the Rochester one because it's like so visually stunning to watch and see that these things are disappearing. And that's just, it's just that visceral shock of it is so cool. But more likely if we're looking at invisibility, it's going to be a material that's created specifically to bend light in a way that it can't reflect off the object and hit your eye. If you, you know, there's different ways of getting the problem. I also just want to do, everyone goes with the Harry Potter invisibility cloak. I I mean, Harry Potter fan. But just, just a plug for relating it back to Wonder Woman as well. Her entire island was invisible. So just... I, I like using that example of invisible things because it was huge. Are, are you familiar with Michio Kaku's books, uh, Physics of the Future and Physics a little of bit the Impossible? I it, I, I'm just I'm curious, curious if you'd read them because I was curious what you think because he ranks things as like degrees of impossibility into the future. And I forget where invisibility is, but it's like, and you really enjoy them. I highly recommend them to you and to anybody watching. Um, they're, they're so fun and, you know, very, very accessible no matter your level of physics um, and super sci-fi. All right, I'm definitely going to check that out because I want to know what is, I, I feel like I would come up with my rankings and I want to know what his are. So. so it's interesting that you bring up Wonder Woman because I think both of you have talked about representation in sci-fi. Uh, So I wanted to talk about that. What got you into both the careers and the creative spaces that you inhabit? And where do you see that representation heading in the future? How do you see it changing? Where, Where are we going next? I think there's probably a lot of us that can say this, but I'm absolutely a product of the Scully effect. Huge X-Files fan. And when I got to college, you know, just the idea of having seen this female character who was you know, a scientist and not like, you know, a done up or, you know, scientist or one dimensional. She was this, she was the first character I'd seen that was allowed to be both feminine and a hard scientist. And I, I, I'd never seen that before. And I'm realizing now um, that con- the movie Contact came out around that same time. So we had a lot of good representation kind of in my generation coming up. And I just, you know, I wanted to be just like Scully. She was also from Annapolis like me. And the fact that her character showed me I didn't have to pick one. I didn't have to be, I didn't ha- I could be a scientist and also this fully realized human was wonderful. And... What I found over the years is so many people kind of in my generation, in that X-Files generation, have a very similar story. And I was lucky enough in 2013 to actually get to the X-Files panel at Comic-Con in San Diego and, like, got to say that to her, which was the highlight, I think, of my life. And I still don't know how I managed to stand up while saying that to them. But what that did is it launched a, a look into what that representation means. And so the Gina Davis Institute for Gender and Film looked at it very specifically and did an did actual research in how X-Files specifically impacts women in STEM, and it's a huge, huge impact. And so I love that there's now data that we can just point to, research data saying, you don't think representation matters, here is why representation matters. And it it is, I think, one of the first times I've been able as a scientist to point to data saying how important representation is. And, and you know, you can extrapolate that to anything, to, to, to race, anything, you know, representation matters. And I love having a graph I can point to to say that. 
the Gina Davis Institute does such incredible work. Like some of the statistics that they have that if there's, if a group is, I think if it's like a crowd scene is 17% women or something, people perceive it as being even and stuff like that. Or if women are talking one third of the time, they're perceived as being, as dominating the conversation. And I, I, like you, I love being able to point to these numbers when people are like, oh, well, you know, no, you're making a big deal about nothing. And it's like, no, this is, Actually, you know, this is a, a social phenomenon that impedes people and throws up obstacles in people's lives. But yeah, I'm, you know, I'm queer, I'm a woman, I'm a person of color, and representation is incredibly important to me. Publishing is still incredibly racist. It, it is also sexist, less so than it used to be. But I, you know, we, we talk about things behind the scenes. It's it's hard. It's a hard thing for that to impact your career, right? And to to feel like this thing that is that shouldn't matter is very definitely very, very definitely something that matters. And I feel like we're at a bit of a, a a crossroads or a turning point where people are trying really hard. And sometimes that itself leads to things that are really difficult to navigate as a person who is sometimes the focus of them. For example, I don't want, I want to be able to write about cultural themes. I want that to be okay for me to do. But at the same time, I don't want that to be the only thing I can do. I don't want there to be this other extreme where if I'm not writing about a Chinese character, then suddenly my work isn't what's wanted. Or if I'm not writing about a, a queer coming out story, then that's like not, you know, that that people, I, I don't want that to be the brand that people shoebox me into and or shoehorn me into and, and say, this is all you're allowed to do. So it, it's, it's really tough to navigate. And, you know, a lot, both the, both the, the bigotry that's a lot of times is very like, people don't even realize they're doing it, the sort of um, background discrimination, I guess, is, is hard to navigate. But then also the well-intentioned initiatives can be very hard to navigate also. It's very tiring. It's very tiring. But it, it, it does, it matters a lot. And I completely agree with what Becky was saying in terms of, you know, seeing ourselves in books and movies and, and seeing different versions of people who are like us on some axis because no demographic is a monolith right and just like we need female characters who are like every type of woman we also need you know asian characters who are every type of person queer characters who are every type of person and it you know that's that's so important to avoid having that like single stereotyped narrative and uh we're we're still so long from from getting there but it's interesting you mentioned the data about women talking specifically and groups because um, one of the things I did at my previous job was evaluate how students interacted with the Spectre comics and the activities that went with it and it was teacher reported so we would have teachers we would have questions like did girls participate as much as boys or who boys participated more girls participated more and it was teacher reported so we always knew thanks to that data that it was going to be skewed. So if it said that boys and girls participated the same, we knew that boys were probably participating more. And if it said that um, girls participated more than boys, they were probably participating at about the same rate. And that, that was mostly just 
helpful for to us. It wasn't data to be published, it was evaluation. But thanks to that research, it actually helped us unskew the data to some degree. I mean, obviously, it's, it's you know, subjective, but it helped us realize that even though it's saying boys and girls are participating the same, what that means is that, that they probably aren't. So that was, yeah, that was just practically very helpful. I was reading uh, that in the Obama White House, uh, the women who were at a high level of, uh, of government there, they started doing a thing where when one of them gave a suggestion, one of the other ones would repeat it and, and give credit back to the person who originally said it. And, you know, I, I, I like to think that the Obama White House was very well-intentioned uh, against sexism, but, you know, they still had found they had to do this and that this made an incredible difference to them being listened to. When they started reinforcing each other, then people would start taking their policy suggestions more seriously and, and hear them a lot more. Uh, so, yeah, it's definitely very current still. Uh, I, I think that's interesting that, I mean, it's discouraging that they had to do that, but I do like that idea of amplifying other voices, you know. So the Little Homo sapiens scientist is a... It's a flipped science fictional dark queer retelling of the Little Mermaid. So it's basically the Little Mermaid, except the the main character becomes a mermaid instead of the other way around. And it's science fiction in like a parallel world to ours, where she does this through DNA manipulation. And the mermaids are rather alien and uh, they're not human-like really at all. And, uh, and she's a scientist who spent her entire life like studying them and the, the sequence of events in the book causes her to, uh, to make this incredibly painful decision. And it's based on the Hans Christian Andersen Little Mermaid, by the way, not the Disney version. So this is not a, this is not a happy story. I've had people who want to like buy it for their young kids and I'm like, I just to warn you, it's it's the it's the original one, the the really sad and dark one. <laughs> that that was very much. I was writing that as I was sort of having gender exploration and coming to the conclusion that I'm I'm yeah, some some uh, stripe of gender queer and the writing about this person who's falling in love with somebody who's another species and who don't treat gender the same way as anybody and I, I, uh, any humans do. And I, I want to mention here that uh, it's actually a trope that I tend to dislike that um, when the aliens or uh, other species that aren't human are, you know, the non-binary genderqueer species. But I also, I made sure I had a genderqueer human character as well because I, I otherwise I just completely hate that trope. Um, and, and representation of humans really matters. Like we can't only be aliens and robots. But I, you know, I wanted to dig into this idea, and the main character is queer, she's, she's a lesbian, but then has to like start to explore these gender ideas. And even when they're at the beginning, when they're trying to explain the weight that we as humans put on our sexual dimorphism is like uh, confusing to this other species who don't really understand why we put so much social importance on like these phenotypical characteristics. Like they understand the science of a sexually dimorphic species. But the, you know, the, the science and the way we treat things as a society uh, can be very, very different. Um, and I, I actually think the science of gender is incredibly interesting. Like I was reading a, a scientist, a biologist on Twitter who went through a, a whole thing about like what defines gender. And she said, well, you might think that it's, you know, chromosomes, XX or XY, but, you know, and then she goes into all the reasons that that's not necessarily true. Um, you might think that it's hormones, but, you know, and all the ways that this is 
really it's not a binary at all at all it's more like a, a probability distribution because the whole world is probability <laughs> and and maybe and part of the reason actually that high school biology teachers don't do like cheek swabs in class and stuff is so that people don't find out something that they don't necessarily want to know about their gender um because we don't we th well a lot of a lot of people especially cis people think it's so obvious you know that i'm this gender but if they, you know, they don't necessarily even know what, you know, scientifically is inside their body. And, and, and that's not what gender is socially. You know, it's not a scientific, like my chromosomes, my hormone levels, whatever. It's my identity. So I, I, I do love digging into that intersection of science and, uh, you know, how we live our lives. You just heard an excerpt from one of our future-telling webinars with author S.L. Huang and physicist Rebecca C. Thompson. I love these conversations because it's fascinating to hear the questions sci-fi authors and STEM experts have for each other. And remember, this is only one part of the conversation. You have to watch the full webinar to dive into other topics like the sex lives of abyssal fish and so much more. You can see the full conversation at go.niu.edu slash futuretelling, where you can also watch past events with guests like authors M.T. Anderson, Daniel Krauss, Patrick Tomlinson, Mary Robinette Kowal, Joelle Charbonneau, and Aaron Starmer, as well as Hugo Award-winning editor Lynn M. Thomas and experts in neuroscience, cosmology, supercomputing, cybersecurity, AI, and more. And if you're listening on or before April 21st, there is still time to sign up for our latest free event, Greening Our Future, with author Jeff Vandermeer, meteorologist Victor Gensini, and mechanical engineer John Shelton. It's going to be a great conversation. Thanks to our guests, S.L. Huang and Rebecca C. Thompson. You can learn more about their work in the show notes. Thanks also to Tor Books and Fermilab for their partnership in our future-telling programs. And thanks to Sada Prescott of the NIU Libraries for helping to edit this webinar into a fun-sized podcast. The STEM Read podcast is produced in association with WNIJ. Support for the STEM Read podcast comes from NIU STEAM and Northern Illinois University. Your future, our focus. Thanks for listening.